0: 3, 2, 1, and we're live. You're tuning into to Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today, I have a very interesting individual in the studio with me. Um, I was introduced to Jedediah from, by a previous podcast guest, Gwen. Um, Jedediah, could you please introduce yourself to those who might not have heard about you or might not know what you do?
1: Okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Jedediah. Uh, I am the CEO co-founder of Alter culture studios uh, my background is in game design so I design entertainment games uh, as well as serious games and so all kinds of mediums really that would be tabletop experiential uh, digital you name it yeah. uh, and I also am a game design educator so I teach uh, game design classes to those that want to try out game design for the first time so in a nutshell that's what I do
0: okay that that is, in, that is in a nutshell okay what is your history with regards to
1: gaming um, I mean so like I think most gamers I mean we've always been playing games from a very young age um, but I will say that for me my history has always been um, making mazes like I would draw mazes on the school bus with my friend that was the very start of like quote unquote game design right where you know you literally have to design mazes for your friend to yep. clear yep. and then it moved on to um, experimenting with uh, Pokemon cards and yep. Pokemon figurines I kind of put the two together and formed my own like board game with okay. its own set of rules and all this was when I was about nine or ten Whoa. years old <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I think even at a very young age, I had this inclination of like, oh yeah, hey, these games are so cool. Let me try to come up with something of my own, and that's why I began. Yeah. Do you still own any of such Pokemon cards today? Um.
0: Oh, they're worth quite a bit now. If um, you haven't heard, no.
1: So I think so. I went through that phase where. um I wasn't uh, studying well for PSLE, so okay. my I think my parents or my mom threw out all my, all my cards. Oh, um, And yeah, I, I'm very I'm, I was I was very upset. Yeah. Um And she's cool now, but yeah. like uh, at that time, I just had no control over it. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and I mean, so there you go, buy like, thousands of dollars, <laughs> thousands um, of dollars indeed. Yeah, little dish, you know, and better not to tell her otherwise you have a heart attack, <laughs> right? But were yeah. you cognizant
0: of what you were doing back then with regards to how? It sounds very innocent. You're Mm. you're just doing what seems natural to you. But were you cognizant Mm. of, hey, this is kind of what I want to do in the future? Or were you even aware of such a thing?
1: Well, I think my parents, ironically, um, contrary to what I just said earlier, (laughs) they were very supportive of what I do. So I think when I was coming up with that Pokemon board game thingy, um, they were looking into oh how do we turn this into something like how do we sell it because they, they are aware of board games right so they go and look up and then that's the first time they have heard of the term intellectual property mm. ip uh and then i think that was the extent of it because at the time you know this was oh, how many years ago was this so this was at least twenty years ago, okay, and um, I think game studios were not a thing in Singapore. I mean, they're mainly the the West influence, yep. so I think they, there was nowhere to really proceed from there, and it kind of just stopped at that. But I, at least I knew that okay, there is such a thing out yep. there. There's this thing called intellectual property, uh, and then I didn't really visit the um, topic of game design until like I was in my early twenties, actually.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, what about um other other mediums of games such as uh, the PlayStation, Nintendo mm. consoles, were you, were you
1: consuming those uh, back in your early teens? Um, so, I had a PlayStation 1. Um the and best. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> probably the best. Um, for sure. But, and I think, I also had maybe like a PSP gotcha. um, and and that was my exposure to consoles uh, my PC just wasn't powerful enough I think I was just playing like jumpstart math or something <laughs> like that, that, that was the extent of mine my... sweeper yeah uh, Minesweeper. mine no nah, a bit better in that <laughs> so I, I remember I had um, one of my favorite ones was uh, 101 Dalmatians um, um, point and click yeah point and click gotcha. I, I thought that as a kid that I replayed that so much mm. um, but I, I, I don't know for some reason I think because I didn't know how to program games so I didn't know what was the pipeline behind digital games um, my sense of like self-expression was always through the means of um, um, paper right mm. and and even I would remember clearly that when I was in primary school Diablo 2 was a oh, hot yeah. thing yep. and I would go to um, my school and we would play Diablo 2 at the table by Literally drawing the um uh, the assets out on paper in like mm. this jotter book and yep. and there'll be the grid right where yep. you put all your items. Yep. So we even had the mechanic, but on paper, and then we would have like a DM yep. quote unquote to to tell the story and say this enemy is attacking you. Yep. That sort of thing. So, um, I think just due to the age and the knowledge, uh, paper was always the most accessible. Uh, yeah.
0: Why, why did that particular f- um? Why did that particular medium uh, attracted
1: you? Because... Because I'm poor. Okay. No, that's not true. If I, I wouldn't be poor if I, you know, own those consoles. But in general, I mean, I didn't have access to money. Um, my parents were also very, very, you know, careful not to spoil me. So, they all those devices that i mentioned i had to fight very hard and argue very hard and work very hard to get them
0: right like like ch- uh, chow logic chow logic
1: <laughs> um oh, like my first uh, before i had those my, i remember the first one i wanted was the game boy mm. and um i i i was i think prime one and I, my mom said okay you get a game boy if you're first in class so okay, f- the enough. next two years i worked very 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 hard yeah. and in p3 i finally got fifth in the whole cohort the first four were in the same class as me yeah. so I said to my mom hey I've got fifth in class can I get my point money?" she's like no you must get first and I was like that's unfair like the first four in the same class as me like what am I gonna so uh, you know I uh, because of that um, still you know i i think that's why i just gravitated towards paper because you know i had no way to control my access to digital devices for games yeah that's mainly it really
0: so what about uh fast forward a couple more years from there what about like tertiary education what was your journey with
1: regards to education Mm. did you pursue game
0: design Mm. or
1: what's up with that i did but um it's quite a, a leap on how i got there um so i completely forgotten about game design well not not forgotten i was uh due to a of unfortunate events in school i kind of strayed away uh from games for quite a while and i eventually was like very lost on like where i wanted to go in life and um, because none of the career paths just made sense to me you know like made sense like financially or made no sense, like, like didn't just didn't motivate me and and i i didn't see like why why do i want to spend my whole next four or five years doing this or that yeah you know i've always said i wanted to become a doctor but then like (laughs) typical right Um, doctor lawyer doctor lawyer banker (laughs) um but then i think as i grew older and had more of my own individual thinking i was just like what's the point you know and how am i going to compete with all these like talented um classmates around mm. me as well so it was so competitive so um i took a, br- a break i didn't go to uni right away um i actually um worked as a personal trainer okay. for a couple of years and i did pretty well uh i was running my own branch uh, and and um just sold a lot of packages to people and i'm so sorry to those clients because uh <laughs> what <are you> <laughs> no because i felt like i was you know i was, I was still serving a script you know yeah. and it was a sales right yeah. not my favorite part of the yeah. job but it has to be done but i did enjoy the part about training people so that's a hint about like why i became a uh, you know game design yep. trainer later and so it's like okay so how do i get a game design right so i i decided that okay i've done this for a couple of years time to get my degree So I went to look for a degree at the SIT um, degree expo hall fair thingy where they show the different degrees at booths. And my target initially was physiotherapy. That's where I went in because I was like, physiotherapy makes sense. Makes sense. And then before I can even get to the physiotherapy booth, I like turned left and like there was this booth with like two Angmo, like guys chatting. And so, you know, visually that already catches your eye. Mm. And then I was like, wait, it says game design. And so I walked over and I picked up the sheet and it says on the curriculum that they have board game design, they have digital game design as, the you know, as the syllabus. And I was like, what is this amazing, like Hogwarts thing? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm taking this. Yeah. And then I didn't even go to the physiotherapy, but I just went home with the form. Yeah. yeah. You know, for some reason I knew this was it. And when I showed my parents... Because they knew of my, you know, childhood, they also said, yeah, this makes sense. Um, and so then that's my return to game design, yeah. you know, in my my early 20s. Yep. Um, and then I went to so the, the Japan Institute, Singapore Institute of Technology, uh, where I studied uh, Bachelor of Arts uh, for game design for four years. Okay. Yeah. And I'm here today.
0: It's interesting. I keep hearing about this Japan school in yeah. Singapore from the the past guests of the podcast that have any inclination or affiliation with the gaming industry in Singapore. Could you just mm. speak?
1: Is is it like the only school that people go to in Singapore? <laughs> I think it's probably the most renowned one. Okay. Um, just because it, you know, it, it has ties to say, like Nintendo, for example. Um, And there is also the... American brunch in Redmond. Okay. Um uh Washington, uh, which actually is also quite renowned over there. So just the name alone brings a lot of people and and they also advertise themselves as having pretty high rates of employment. Mm. Um and there's also that um I guess the novel factor that they are using games as a way to teach programming. Mm. Right. Because so as as programmers you would build games, but it through that process you learn how to hone your programming skills. Yep. Um so all that made it very attractive and, and 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 I remember when they first came to Singapore, um, you know, they had all these like for, uh, American game designers that came over to teach, right? Uh, people have worked in actual studios. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge deal for the games industry. And, and I think that's why the Japan was, you know, is still is probably the, the biggest name for school wise. Yeah. Um, yeah, not that the rest are not great. The, um, the, the others are great as well, but it's just the biggest one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was the climate of things, uh, back then when you were studying or even when post mm. when you were studying? How was the climate? in singapore regards to gaming as a whole because i would imagine this would be uh perhaps mid 2000s Mm. yeah so how, how was the climate was back then
1: so i mean i wasn't um unfortunately very active in the industry back then but from the stories i've told like you know there was an initial like strong interest by the government um like imda uh you know set up this entire like uh Sort of like a incubator um, space thing in in Singapore. Um, and it, there was a lot of interest, but I think nobody actually knew how to maintain it. Um, Mm. there was also a lack of understanding, um, of like what games are and what they can do. So, uh, on top of that, um, I don't think that the, at a time, the university actually equipped, um, students on like, how do you set up a business? Right. Which mm. is pretty key if you want to start up your own local studio. Yeah. Um, so because of that, it kind of faded into obscurity. Um, and, and, and so games in Singapore took a dip. Yep. after a while and I think there was a resurgence only recently in the last few years yep. uh, especially you know since you had Gwen on board um, you know Singapore Games Association was a thing right like last year uh, and and so now it's on the rise so I think it had its you know initial high it went down and then it came back again um, and I think it also helps that even in other parts of the industry like other industries um, there is an interest in the usage of games uh, particularly with the advancement of technology um, and my so my background is um, I also came from a civil service college okay yeah and civil so, wait what is that so a civil service college for those not gonna know is where all your civil servants go to do their workshops Right, because they got to go through continued training. Right, it,
0: it, it makes sense now that you 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 put it that way. But yeah.
1: I was never cognizant of, of of such a thing before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there is a dedicated like Fair like enough. college, right? I mean, it's not a, a, a kid college; it's an adult college. Fair enough. Um, and basically, they are looking into very innovative ways to teach civil <laughs> servants, and so games has always been one of the more innovative ways to teach. Right, uh, so I was in in that unit, we do teach this game design class. Uh, on how to um, design games for the usage of like citizen engagement or maybe mm. like training for your own like team or organization uh, and so and it has, it has always been a full full house in terms of like class attendance yeah. um, so there's, there's a strong search of interest in public service in, yeah. in, in, in the corporate side of things yeah. and that helps the games in, industry as a whole as well to get some you know recognition and yeah. Uh, gigs yeah, yeah. Mm. so
0: we both live in Singapore, mm. and I guess the old adage of being in Singapore when you were growing up with regards to the education system is that uh, anything remotely creative, let's mm. say talking about fine arts, talking about, let's say, sculpt- sculptures, mm. uh, games, mm. uh, all these things, there's always been the old adage that it's very difficult to find money. Mm. Um Was that... Did you encounter that, that particular sentiment when you were in school, when you were going out of school, and did that... And if so, did it... Uh, did it hinder you or did it concern you in any way because there needs to be amount, a certain amount of practicality, mm. pragmatism when you go up, you need to mm. get money mm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question but like, it's also a lot of layers to that. Mm. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll unpack it from a few angles. So I think there's the part where being, when you say in school, I think like that's already one layer mm. where in DigiPen it's very easy to be in a bubble, you know. Um, and I I so uh in the Japan it is I I won't say it is the same now but at least in my time um you're pretty much there um every day every hour um mm. and I remember <laughs> lacking a social life gotcha. when I was in there. Yeah. Um, just because I think we, you know, at least for me, I was very dedicated to bringing out the best in my games. Yep. Um, and so I would even like stay overnight in school, uh, you mm. know, that, that sort of thing just to work on our games. And, um, because of that, we actually had very little interaction with the games industry. Fair enough. Uh, in fact, I only got in, got to know Gwen because I'm slightly more extroverted than most. And so I took the initiative to know uh outside of the Japan yep. bubble but otherwise like it's very hard to know what's going on in the games industry locally yep uh and 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 so your goal as a Japan student would to be you know join a bigger company like ubisoft yep, for example enough. um and, and so i think because of that um me thinking about uh, where, or, or if I was a general student in Japan, you know, I wouldn't be thinking about the lack of money in the games industry because I don't think about the games industry. Mm. I just think about my next step being Ubisoft. Mm. However, that didn't apply to me because I didn't want to go to Ubisoft. Um, I was, I, I, it was quite interesting that I had a second, uh, existential crisis over like what kind of game designer mm. I wanted to be. Yeah um and and i just didn't see any of the local options appealing to me and i think that's where the money issue comes in where like because there's not enough support for a lot of the local indie companies there are not enough uh, games that would appeal to local singaporeans yep. um whenever you think of a game that inspires you it tends to be those outside of singapore um then that's where it affects like you know where you want to go right when you think about the industry yep. um so yeah, that's that's I think the school side. But the other side that I think I would want to talk about is just the lack of money for creative stuff in general, uh, specifically for games. Um, so one of the things that I, or one of the problems that was introduced to by other game designers, not me, uh, was that if you tried to, for example, um, apply for a grant with National Arts Council, mm. and you said that my project is a game. Mm. They actually like don't accept it at all. Are we talking about back then, or are we talking about now? Now, twenty twenty one, still the same thing. Interesting, right? And I don't blame them. I think it's just a lack of understanding of what a game is, mm-hmm. right? And and they don't know that actually, hey, all games are art. You know, that's that's the thing. Uh, and so, um, Reese. Uh, recently, we or oh, not recently, last August I actually did a uh, lecture at an NEC uh, mm-hmm. where the topic was literally games as art, and uh, I was trying to impart some of the comparisons to why games are art by definition, and also just you know not if not by the books at least like look at it and be like you can't deny that's a work of art. Yep, you know. Um, so I think the support for games financially um, by the government that boards are—it uh, varies, you know. Sometimes it's just a matter of knowing what is the right terminology to use, Fair enough. right? Because if you say that oh, this is a digital experience meant to educate something, <laughs> like it, then <laughs> it, it sells better. It sells better, right? <laughs> so I don't think I don't think they necessarily don't like the idea of games, yeah. or they don't want to support games. It's just having to build that. Gap knowledge gap and and um sh- and proving and building upon it and experimenting on what games can do, yeah. uh, and then I believe in the long run the money would come in. So yeah, that's to kind of address the lack of money situation.
0: I mean, yeah. gaming um has always had a, like a moral panic with regards to news and media. Mm. So imagining people, let's say, in in all these stat boards and all, they are of a certain mm. age, of a certain age group, they didn't really grow up with games. I think and with regards to the moral panic i guess with pokemon mm. with uh, diablo with the imagery mm-hmm. counter-strike violence and all that i would imagine they are being fed a very like bad narrative with yeah, regards the work to the of game. the
1: devil <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: so yeah. um i want to expound on what you just mentioned in regards to game as art mm. so could you explain like what your definition of artist i mm. guess today mm-hmm. and what uh what are your thoughts on that particular sentiment games as art Mm. yeah
1: well i think um you know when it comes to art so i i am no means like from the art scene so i'm going to be um paraphrasing a lot of the things so if any art academics are listening please don't (laughs) kill me um but from at least what i researched um you know art in general are things that allow you um to almost have like a Um, I mean, self-expression, right? Like that's the first and foremost, right? Uh, Secondly, we have, the artist has a certain concept that they're trying to convey. And so they put together the elements to bring out a certain experience, right? And also there is a form of participation because Mm. without the viewer or the participant of the art, right? Then, you know, what, what then can you really call it art right if the tree falls and nobody hears it is it a sound mm. uh, or, or whatever i, I'm, 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 I can't <laughs> <Is> remember that <laughs> phrase but you know what which one <laughs> i'm trying to say um yeah so and i think if you think about it that way right games are pretty much that mm. uh, in fact games is probably one like i would argue one dimension higher than say a painting mm. um because each experience or playthrough of a game is unique right like yes the designer might have designed a game in a certain way but the player gets to dictate what happens in a game based on their actions and so that becomes a dialogue between the artist uh, design and the player right and and i think there's something very fascinating about that because every player would walk away and be like oh yeah hey this happened to me in that game oh it did it Oh, but this happened to me in that game, yep. right? And, and that's, the, that's the interesting part about it. Um, and, and I, I think that itself is, you know, it qualifies it to be art already. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's how I would define it. What might the counter
0: arguments to this particular, uh, narrative or framework be? Mm-hmm. That it isn't art, that it's mm-hmm. just something child's play, really. It is mm-hmm. for kids. Uh, it's for children. It's not to be regarded as on the same level as, let's say, a painting mm. or like a sculpture mm. with uh, X amount of history to it. There's mm. a, a long-standing narrative. What What is the counter-argument to, to this? Well,
1: I think, interesting you should say counter-argument because I already think there's already a lot of debate about the definition of art itself, mm. right? It was So there's this artist, his name is like Marcel Duchamp, mm. right? And he was very um, famous for... Uh, coming out of this ca- category of art called uh, ready made. Um, if if you have ever been to any artist, I'll look online. He has this famous like toilet seat mm. cover thingy, and he says that that's art, right? Mm. And all he had to do is attach like a fake pseudonym, right? And and so. The, the fact that you know the definition of art itself is already murky and is ultimately decided by the ones who are in power right Well, like when you go to a museum right anything you see in a museum is curated by someone who yep. has the power to decide what is art yeah right so there's already that level there that i feel like oh my god then you want to define games as art is like one extra you know step as well right so i um, to come up to say what is a common counter argument will be pretty difficult because there are many uh, lines to it Mm. but i will say that maybe the impression of games is something that would definitely be a huge factor so whenever i teach a class and i say hey who who here does plays games right and a lot of people say they uh, don't play games or they have never played a game and i say oh how about a sport you know or mm. when you play catching yeah. right then go like oh yeah i do right like somehow they are stuck with this impression that games are all about the digital games or on the phone right yeah. and they forget about simpler things um i think then when you start to expand the definition of what a game is it allows you to free of mind of uh, in terms of how you see art as well yeah. and that helps to build that bridging of um, how one relates to it, the other yeah
0: let's talk about mm. that
1: bridging for a bit um, mm.
0: has your idea of what gaming is mm. has it changed across the years
1: ooh oh that's a good question I've never thought about it until now uh okay yes that's that's my short answer for sure I mean if if, if it hasn't I'm not evolving I'm not growing and then I'm a failure I'll, I'll check back in five years yeah I'll check back in five years um so I, I think that my definition of gaming definitely has changed. Uh, the biggest shift I would notice would probably be when I was working at um, Civil Service College. Um, I remember that we were looking at various games um, that were less common and, and not commercial uh, that often was experimental as well. What do you mean by experimental? So for example, I, we played a game called Solace. S O L I S. Okay, um, and and it was a very weird game. Um, it's not a digital game. It, all you need is ten people in a space or more or less. Okay, okay, but there are ten rules that you have to follow, and I won't say all the ten rules. But the thing was, um, you know, you cannot talk during this game, right? Uh, there was specific. Rules on how you should be moving. So they said you ha- one only one person can walk around the space at one time, mm. but you have to move with intent. Like that is literally the rule, <laughs> right? And when that one person is moving, everybody else has to have their belly button face the person. What? Well, that's because, you know, so that means that your head can face elsewhere yep. if you want, but your belly button should always turn to yep. face the person. Uh, and then you can go up to a... That person who is moving can go up to a person and wave their hand, right? And the person who receives the wave can ch- uh, nod his head to follow the person in a snake-like trail or just not respond and nothing happens, right? Like a rejection almost. Mm. And the game ends when one person stands in the mid, approximate middle of everybody else Mm -hmm. and then everybody decides to form a circle around that person deliberately, right? Then the game would end. So that means it requires every single member to purposefully, without vocal communication, to form a circle around the person, right? So it's a very experimental game. There is no clear win condition, right? And I remember when, when we were facilitating it, some people were like, what is this for? What is the game about? Like everybody was expecting a win condition, right? Mm-hmm. But then some people were like, "Oh, this is about leadership. This is about communication, right? This is about body language, right? And stuff like that. This is about agency. This is about um um and 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 all these things came about without us saying what the game mm-hmm. is for, right? So I I think that that itself already expanded my definition of what a game." can be and can do right and that made it so much more exciting for me Uh, I think that's why when I came in contact with the uh, a lot of the artists from the uh, local art scene in Singapore like some of them were already experimenting with games in in their work and, and and all their work basically reflected that ex- solace experience that yep. i've talked about so yep. far uh, even right now uh, i was um uh, so I'm, I'm currently working on our own uh studio game and um that itself has no win condition that was my first my it is my first time experimenting with a game with no win condition yep. yeah so um yeah that's i would say that's probably how my definition of what a game is has changed over time.
0: Interesting. So going back to uh, the education that you receive for regards yeah. to game design, I'm yeah. just curious to know, were there, are there foundational steps that they teach you back in school that a game has to do this? It mm. has to have X number of things, a set number of things, mm. and you have to, you have to bring the participant from point A to point B. Mm. Because what you just said, it sounds, if if you were to video that entire thing mm. and you put it up on like a like a screen in a museum, it sounds almost like an installation. It I can is. imagine that. It exactly. Is. Yeah. Games
1: are art. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's a great question. And I think anybody who you know wants to get into Japan has would need to know that at the end of the day, the uh, Japan, the aim of a university, at least for the Japan, is they want to get you a job. Right. So they teach you the things that would be vital to the workplace that you go to, i.e. Ubisoft. Yep. And so, you know, the things that they teach there are mainly about and for the digital game pipeline. They do teach um, tabletop game design, but only as a means to um, um, let you practice game design concepts before you get into programming, which is going to take a while to get a hang of. So um, especially for myself, I went in with no programming knowledge. Zero zero okay yeah so um i think that what you learn there is very pipeline focused um and e- as a game designer specifically i mean so there's different tracks right there's the programmer track there is the uh the programmers that design uh specifically the engine that you use to build a the game yep. there are programmers that design the tools for mm-hmm. the, game there the game designers that are game designers that put all the le- the level together and then there's the artists as well and the story writers right so they are they're all you know in some form uh requiring very different skill sets mm. um and as such i think when you want to compare it to the type of art games that i talked about earlier obviously that doesn't really match mm. la you know because you know the it's called experimental for a reason, right? It's not the main market, and so all the biggest studios in Singapore are not working to build that sort of experimental game. So whatever I learned in the Japan uh, definitely did not uh, help any of the things that I'm doing right now, except maybe for a few. Q- key a few key concepts like say prototyping how do Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. how do you iteratively build on a game so that you can uh, test it quickly before it gets too big and you fail right the idea is that you start something very small and then you s- slowly turn your little hut into a big castle yep, yep. Um, and, and and hopefully by the end of it it becomes very stable which hopefully. it never is it always crashes and burns <laughs> in, in, it's all a lie when they say that a game is you know working and bug free yeah. it never is yeah. so yeah that makes um, a terrible
0: children's story by the way
1: <laughs> oh yeah it's all a lie it's all a lie a bedtime story um, so yeah I, I think that's the main difference between the art games and the games that they teach at the japan yeah yeah so you
0: you mentioned mm. uh when you were young that you had an interest in board games uh mm. going so far as to make them so when you entered the japan and there was this uh particular course on it um mm. did it reignite something in you to want to pursue it or was the conversation in the japan always to push people towards uh like the bigger gaming uh, giants industry to be part of the pipeline so was there like a like a conscious choice to like Hey, this is why I want to pursue uh, the, the the tabletop and and the, the the more
1: traditional type of gaming as opposed to being part of the pipeline. Interesting. So, I think I de- I never thought of myself as part of the pipeline. Mm. I did it just because I wanted to. It was a lot more naive and simple. I want to make game. <clears throat> <Okay. clears throat> That's it. Um, I didn't, and I think for me, I was actually very into uh, digital card games because that so i think i only started really getting into like the digital format because of digital card games like hearthstone for example gotcha and i mean it makes sense right like my my main love was tabletop and card games Mm. so the fact that i have a digital version that i can you know Play one on on the go. Yep. Like, that was huge. When Hearthstone came out, I was like, oh my god, you this know. it's the combination phenomenal. of games
0: and, I guess, artistry and
1: game design, yeah. I think maybe I didn't think so much about the artistry part at the time. But definitely the fact that it involved my tabletop card game, like, uh, Fix, yep. right? And so, I I actually became a huge Hearthstone fan. And I, played, I have been playing it for eight or nine years and i took a break in between uh and i actually went to um the game developer conference in san francisco i think this was three years ago gdc gdc um uh, just so that i can meet designers and hopefully bump rub shoulders with someone that worked in Hearthstone. And yeah. and actually i did so i was walking around and i saw like these two people with like Hearthstone patches on their bags. I was like, where do you get in? they're like, oh, we are designers of oh. Hearthstone. I was like, oh my God, it's so casual. Yeah, And then I took photos with them, had a great chat. And then 10 minutes later, uh, after I departed from them, I received an email saying, we regret to inform you that your internship application at Hearthstone has been rejected. Oh dear. I was like, oh <laughs> crap, I have... N- I knew it, I was too crazy, and then they immediately told them don't hire this guy. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like I mean for me that's 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 how I saw it, right? Like my goal was to work for the game that I really loved as opposed to I wanna be part of the pipeline and do this. Um my and I for myself it was about the designing of cards specifically. So I I remember for my portfolio in my application at Hearthstone, I kind of um, came up with the mechanics and the system design for about 100 plus Hearthstone cards. That's I mean, incredible. That no, it's, it's just I copy images from internet and yeah. then I type in words and yep, then yep. that's it. You know, um, but that's how much I love Hearthstone. And, I, and I, I I saw the Japan as like my way of possibly getting into- Like a jumping off point. Yeah, like a jumping off point. Less about the pipeline. Um, yeah. Mm. What? I think the reason
0: why I asked that question because- um. Traditionally, I would imagine, um, when someone would think of games, they would think of console games. They would mm. think of, uh, PC games. I think the board games and tabletop games are not thought of as much. They're mm. kind of left behind. They are the other less, they're not as sexy as the, the, the PlayStation games, the Xbox games, the games on Steam, the, like, things you play through a screen as mm. opposed to pen and paper and mm. stuff like that. Mm. So I think that's one of the, so I'm just curious to you know what is, Are you able to to rationalize as to why you enjoy card games and, to a certain extent, Hearthstone? What is the appeal to that? So, is it the mechanics and and the way you can... Because a a lot of these card games, yes, uh, there is a set number of cards and it tests the... At, at least from my understanding, it yeah. tests the adaptability and I guess how someone would strategize yeah. to 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 outwit and to outcombat the the opponents. So there is that level of meta gaming and uh, competitive yeah. So I
1: promise I will get back to that. But it's just that the thing you said earlier about how pe- some might find digital games more sexy. Mm. I also think to myself actually who is making that statement because depending on who makes that statement, it has a very different implication. So I think that maybe some might say that because of the money and the optics that comes with digital games you know i mean esports for example right like and and tabletop is you know it's it costs so much more because of the fact it's physical you have to ship it around right i mean kickstarter definitely helps but and there's a whole other market that i I'm, i'm afraid i don't quite understand as much but um the point is that like i think money is and and optics is ultimately what makes games more sexy right and and um and i think for me i have i've never really been about the money in optics i think that's where the art side really does make it relevant i really appreciate games as a work of art as opposed to the external factors of like how much it makes Mm. not that there's anything wrong with it Mm -hmm. um it's just that I, you know, we, as gamers, we're always like, oh my God, this game come out. What makes it different, right? What's the, what's yep. the coolest part yeah. of it that makes it? I think that's the part where it's really artsy in a way. Um, but yeah, to the reason why I would like her, why I like enjoy Hearthstone. I mean, uh, I, I, I kind of played Yu-Gi-Oh competitively, um, before I started on Hearthstone. Gotcha. Um, and I also played Pokemon cards because I collected it. So, um, the fact that, I think it's just a sure convenience and, and the user interface and the user experience of her really, like, you know, was like, oh my God, this is uh, a, a thing that allows me to connect with a lot of other players. I don't spend so much money, mm. right? I mean, part of physical collectible card games is the money. Like, I recently I've been playing a lot of uh, physical uh, magic the gathering commander okay. i okay. just started okay and that circle the conversations are crazy like oh hey i just auctioned for like a 300 card i was just like oh no i can't <laughs> afford it you guys like this is why i'm boring from you like I, I can't i just can't afford it at this point make like, a proxy <laughs> yeah no I, I did i asked like oh can i have proxies what's her? and then they're like um there is a certain limit of how many proxies <laughs> you can so it's okay um, but and, and that's fine right but so for digital games it has made it a lot more approachable for people and it's a lot cheaper as well mm-hmm. and I remember um, I think it was two years ago before pandemic I organized my own um, uh, Hearthstone uh, uh, what's it called so there was a new set that came out and I just wanted to do something fun uh, and I had the access to resources so I organized a public gathering for the opening of the set this was mm. two years ago and yep. uh, there were about 30 people it was nothing big but I knew none of these people right it was just like hey who loves her stone let's come <laughs> and let's and I organized my, my own tournament and yep. that was fun and it was a one-off thing you know I didn't really continue after that but like it's stuff like that that really makes me go yeah this makes it so I can connect with more people you know in general <laughs> Um, one of the friends that I uh, met uh, uh, that I know for many many years and is currently in the Magic the Gathering group I knew him because we were at a really, really huge Christmas party. Yep. And I saw someone standing in a corner being, you know, recluse away from everyone. And he was playing Hearthstone (laughs) on his phone. And I think, like, his partner was scolding him for being anti-social, but he just didn't care. And I was like, that's my friend. Like, that's my friend right there. Yeah. And now that's how we got to know each other. And now, so, like, again, Hearthstone, or maybe, I I will guess, many digital card games can bring people together. Um, in this time of age yep. yeah so I'm curious to know um, can there still be innovations with regards to
0: how uh, digital or even traditional card mm. game designs can be made in the future because from at least from my base understanding always it is Sort of formulaic to a certain degree. There's always like a resource pile. Yeah, it's it's it, it's mostly turn based. Mm. Um, you has you have a set of five cards. Mm. You have to outwit your opponent by either a certain win condition or you whittle the HP down something. Mm. Mm. So I'm just curious to know from our perspective, can there be further innovation to this? I know recently, um, Valve did Artifact or they redid Artifact, which is a card game based on Dota Two, and there is like three different mm. uh gaming mats that you can play with uh, at that, a certain time so uh, i'm just curious to game. know that from your perspective yeah
1: that game is way too complex and i think they, they just <laughs> way made too it complex yeah and <laughs> unnecessary and they and they made it free mm. recently yeah because it failed yes um sorry just just a fact yep. um and so i uh so that's uh, it's, it's interesting you should ask this question because honestly i haven't thought about card game design in a while yeah um, even though I play it so much, and that's because the types of games right now that I do with mainly tend towards the serious territory, yeah. But if I were to think about the inefficient card games, hmm, I mean, okay, like, come on, every single card game post Magic was inspired by Magic: yeah. The Gathering, yeah. right? Like you see a mechanic in some other game and you're like, well, yeah, Magic the Gathering kind of did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the more interesting ones that were innovative were the dungeon run ones like State Aspire. Mm. So I think that that is considered true innovation because like, you know, it really used the digital platform to its full advantage of randomization and, yep. and making every experience yep. different. And it still utilized cards. And when I say utilized cards, it might, at least for me, my key, key distinction is that um, there there has to be um, or at least for me I like my card games to involve mechanics like searching your deck you know managing your hand discarding because there's some games that uses cards but they don't have all these card mechanics they're just there as uh, text boxes in yep. a way right <laughs> um, and it's not a criticism I'm just saying that, that for me I would want my card games to be more card yep. resource based and State Aspire s games definitely capture it and so I guess my challenge to you know, these Slate Aspire S games is then now how do you take that Slate Aspire mechanic to the next level? Well, I yeah. think people are starting to explore it. Um there was one game, I can't remember what's the title called. The uh, It was set in some like um it was the one where you they had two different modes. Oh no 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 Okay, so there was this card game called Signs of the Sojourner. S-O-U-G... My English... How do you pronounce that word? S-O-U-J-O-U-R-N-E-R. Sojourner, yeah. It's Sojourner. Yeah. Um, that is a work of art to me. Why is that? Okay, so it had the state by a kind of mechanic. Um, but it had this thing where um, each... You and your... The, the AI player would play cards in turn so you take turns to play one card and you would form a a river of cards in the middle okay and depending on the sequence if you played it correctly you can clear all the cards and and quote-unquote win but Mm -hmm. it is a co-op game with the ai okay why is this important Mm -hmm. it is a metaphor for communication so the game is all about communication the story is you are a shopkeeper you're trying to go around the country collecting wares right and and so you have to play certain cards like bargain or like Mm. curry favor that sort of thing (laughs) you know but it felt like communication right because it's always an exchange between two people and the fact that you take turns playing a cards in this river in the middle it was a it was a perfect visual metaphor and the mechanics like there was this mechanic called babble so you can play like two cards in a row right because you can talk more and more just like i'm doing right now um and um and so that used the the slater's spire mechanic but using it as a way to 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 artistically represent um the the concept of communication Mm -hmm. and and empathy yeah and i thought that was amazing yeah that
0: that definitely sounds interesting yeah Mm. interesting so from at least from what i've noticed um there seems to be a phenomenon in gaming or in the gaming industry that when someone comes up with something innovative, yeah. let's say Slate Aspire, mm. um, there seems to be various copies of it to, mm. to copy the mechanics. Mm. Um, another example would be, I guess, Dark Souls mm. um, from From Software. They, mm-hmm. they came up with this really innovative idea and then they came up with their own intuition. And then subsequently, people just copied the surface level aesthetic of it. They mm. copied what did, they could gather formally and just import it into their own game Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. is is that something that you see from your perspective as well as a game designer or as a consumer like there is a lot of all these like iterations of a game you played before like Mm. you play something like hey this is exactly like this game that i've played before and nothing really changes
1: yeah i think as a game designer it's you can easily tell like within five minutes of playing a game whether this is going to be something unique or is it just a reskin yeah uh that kinda sucks because it also means that like, you know, I I, I I don't want to name any specific games, but there there were a few times in my life where there, there's a huge hype over this one game. Okay. And and all and it's enjoyed by all my non-game designer friends. Mm. And I'll go like, yeah, but there's nothing special about that game. And I'll feel very left out, right? <laughs> it's like FOMO. And but I can't unsee it. As a game designer, I yep, know yep. how it probably went about. And so, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with reskinning. Um, in terms of like if if uh, aim broke, don't fix you uh, know, don't fix it. And yep. you know, there is always gonna be people out there that like reskins because it's just it, it, it's a sense of comfort, right? I think at the end of the day, when you had a hard day at work, sometimes you just want a game that allows you to shut off and learning an entirely new game um itself is a cognitive you know Load As opposed to Oh I'm like, exposed to Different art Or different story setting and, I, and so I see Its value in What value It provides to These group of people So that is my Very very I'm trying to be Very fair about yeah. it Without letting my Personal bias get in yeah. the way um, But My own personal enjoyment Obviously I can't yeah. You know Because I that's what My occupation Just uh, doesn't allow me To appreciate it <laughs> Yeah.
0: Interesting. Gwen yeah. was talking about her, her passion for Genshin in uh, <laughs>
1: yes. the previous episode. Her <laughs> uh, and Zhongli. Yes. <laughs> so,
0: does have, having gone through the, mm-hmm. the education of and mm. being in the industry, does it ruin your experience with regards to consuming
1: games? Oh, I mean, I kind of joke about it when I say it like, ruins it for me. I mean, it's... But you can tell. <laughs> you can tell what the game is trying to do. To a certain level
0: Right
1: So I think The thing is For their games I mean the whole point Of games is this Like there is An audience For everyone You know It's and, and sometimes The game is just Not meant for you You're not the target audience And that's perfectly okay You know You can say the game is shit You can say the game is bad But if you're not The target audience Does it really matter Mm-mm-mm. What you think You know Ultimately Does anybody out there Actually appreciate the you know work that you put out i think that's more key um as as like with any art right like there's a lot of art like oh my god that's not art or like oh that art is shit i don't understand but you're not the you don't have a million dollars you're you're not the target audience right you're not gonna buy the art and it's the same thing for it's very
0: easy to dismiss things that you don't like
1: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah no i myself included i think Mm. even as a game designer so i think the one thing that being a game designer does is it allows you to objectively uh um like uh you are you can objectively feel no sorry what's the how should i put it um you know you're more conscious about like why you like or you don't like something and therefore you know you're not going to tear a game down just because it doesn't Mm -hmm. appeal to you i think that's the one thing i've learned as a game designer so um it has made me more cognizant to all these things rather than you know uh oh, I can't enjoy it, enjoy it anymore. And and there will be other types of games that as a game designer, you enjoy more. Um, for example, I think there are games where the programming itself, right, on the back end is novel, right? But those are things that a typical consumer wouldn't appreciate. Mm-hmm. But I would. Yeah. Because I'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's a really cool way to go about doing it. You know, or a game with no rules, right? Like most, most people would be like, huh? Can yeah. Right. <laughs> but I'll be like, no, that's really cool because yeah. it's a game designer. These are the things that I think about. So again, it really boils down to the target audience of the, the game as well.
0: This, this particular mindset, does it come with maturity? Does it come with a sense of...
1: Uh, I'm not just, mature, so I don't... Okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, does it come with... Sorry, yeah, so yeah, it comes with a sense of...
0: I don't know, just being... Having spent time in the industry and just constantly just evaluating and being self aware that hey, not all things are for me and that's fine, mm. and uh, trying to learn and trying to see what what the that particular piece of uh, medium is trying to do, what that particular game is trying to do, mm. I would imagine that's a very like mature uh, sense of looking at things. Hmm. I don't think it's
1: something we teach in school, right? Well, actually, that's not true. I think no, I. I do think the school does teach it to some extent. Just by learning. Okay. So there is this concept in game design. Um, I'll give the very like Cliff Notes version. It's Bartles tex- uh, player taxonomy. Part what? Bartles player taxonomy. Okay. So B-A-R-T-L-E. Um, and there are four player types. So there is, uh, explorers, uh, achievers, socializers, and, uh, killers. <laughs> um, yeah. And killers are basically Competitors, like competitive people, right? <laughs> so it's not about you liking to kill other players. I mean, that's a part of it, but like even in chess, for example, yep. that can be seen as a, a game for killers because you are being competitive in intellectual wits, right? Uh shout out to Queen's Gambit. So yeah. um yeah, so when when you think when you are very you know aware of like hey yeah there are four player types and when you design games you think about okay this game is going to appeal to the socializers because Mm -hmm. because it gives them the opportunity to bond and talk about certain topics like then then you start to know that yeah games are not all games are for everyone
0: you know
1: if you are not someone that plays socializer games then something like cards against humanity may not appeal to you right like Mm -hmm. and and so i think if anything being in school actually does teach you about those things it's a weather of did you actually make the connection like, on a personal basis as a game designer to um, think about it and connect it to the bigger picture of what's going on? Yeah. yeah.
0: The the four categories that you just mentioned, mm. are they usually good uh, foundational steps as mm. to uh, the, the type of game that someone might want to create mm. and how it might appeal to a certain set of audiences? Mm. Are they good jumping
1: off points? I mean, that's what I teach in my current game design class. Okay. Like, that's the first thing I teach, you know? And it's to just... And I think it's a fun activity. It's like an MBTI test, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, I am this player type. I am yeah. also that player type, yeah. right? And, and when you start to see in the room that, hey, everybody's enjoys different types of games, right? Um, I, I mean, my, my hope is that that also opens like one's eyes to products in general, like not just games, because then you start to think to yourself, yeah, actually other pieces of medium, like movies and, and like, you can also enjoy different things. Yeah. So yeah, that that, that is what I would usually teach.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Before moving on to your work in outer culture, I just want to talk yeah. about monetization in gaming. Mm. So there is monetization in Hearthstone, right? Mm. And the idea of, so it, it is very interesting to me because <clears throat> At least when I grew up, games used to be uh, physical products that you can buy mm. off. Let's say Challenger or gonna go and buy money by the pirate ones and whatever. So they used to be tangible CDs. Mm. And then in the early two thousands, when when Steam came up, everything started being moved to digital. Mm. And that is how I guess publishers publishers used to sell like a single title, and then then came DLC, mm. and then came the expansion pass. Yeah. Right now, and yeah. we're up to the stage where there's microtransactions. Yeah, that. You, they can, I think they call it a freemium game. Like they give yeah. you it for free, but you buy, they find very interesting ways to, yeah. to make yeah. you spend money on it. What are your thoughts on microtransactions mm. as a concept for, I guess, uh, monetization? And mm. is it sustainable? Like that is, is, is this what you, what you see in the industry moving forward? Because mm. at least from, from what I can see as with, with the titles coming out, mm. there's becoming there is less and less of single uh exp- experiential titles, yeah. but more. Let's say I think the the previous trend was uh mobas and battle arenas and yeah. like PUBG, Fortnite, and Dota, League of Legends, all the other clones. So yeah. it kind of limits what uh bigger publishers might might want to put their money on because they they need to get back mm. like their investment. Yeah.
1: Mm. So I think it's ex- <clears throat> extremely relevant now, like with the whole NFT thing, right? Yep. Uh, so I think I want to caveat that I'm probably not the best on this topic, um, because of what what I mentioned earlier. I think the Japan, you know, is uh, the education is great for like my technical skills and design skills, but uh, understanding the financial part of the market, not one of them. <laughs> so I think even for me, like learning about these topics, like I can. I, I don't, I'm, I'm also a more creatively hungry person in general and not financially hungry. So I understand things at the basal level. Um, and anything else is pretty much like much from what I read in my newsfeed. So, uh, I'm probably not the best to comment on this, but I, I mean, I will say that at least for me, I mean, I, I obviously partake in the whole micro transaction, uh, transaction, you know, uh, trend in like when you, when you are, you know, so I think a very good example would be something like Hearthstone, right? Like, mm. You know, what's the difference between that, the digital card that you buy, um, versus the physical card? And, and, and the argument is that, yeah, you can't resell Mm. uh, the physical cards, you know, and, but here's the, I guess here's my observation, especially from my interactions with my Magic the Gathering circles recently, right? Like they sell cards at an absurd amount, (laughs) right? So it's, they, uh, a lot of them do it as a result of like, you know just because they know that they they can actually resell it and even make back or earn money right it's an entire market you know one of them was even saying like you know when cryptocurrency is getting weaker that's the time to like buy magic cards that sort of thing like there is a correlation
0: Crypto when cryptocurrency is 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 getting
1: weaker in value you should also buy magic the gathering cards yeah that's an inverse relation. Yeah. Please don't quote me on that. That's hearsay. That's not financial That's advice. <laughs> no, yeah. But I, I'm just saying that, see that conversation alone is yeah. already so interesting, yeah. right? That they are talking about all these and I'm I, i, I I'm trying to learn about it. But again, because I'm not a financially hungry person, I just kind of uh, tune off if it goes on for too long. Um, but, but when it comes to Hearthstone, again, why do I like Hearthstone? The fact that I, firstly, because I'm, you know, Poor um, And I don't have A lot of money So The fact that I can Enjoy the same Card experience Right Without spending a lot Is Why I play it So I'm not really Concerned that I cannot like resell the card Uh, and if if anything they still have their own um, in-game economy Um, like Mm. you know you you can convert the physical cards that you don't want anymore to dust and and you can use the dust to make new cards and yes you know there's something to be said about like they can always you know balance the rates and all that yes i'm sure yeah
0: there was some controversy about that yeah
1: Yeah. exactly um but at least for me i've always been about the way i see it as okay I pay X amount to get this number of hours of entertainment. Okay. Right. And when I compare it to say a movie or something, you know, like when, if I go to the cinema and watch a movie, right? Like I don't own the movie, but I paid $12 for three hours worth of entertainment. Right. And, and so in Hearthstone, I would be paying $50, for example, for expansion of cards. And I get three months or even six months of entertainment. And when you put it like that, then maybe it's, not so critical anymore. But that, again, that is just my opinion of someone that consumes the media and is not so concerned with the financial part of it. I'm sure someone from, who does care about it, will see it very differently and tear my argument down. And I'll be like, well, then you're not the target audience. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's simply
0: it. I mean- loot boxes and microtransactions has all has i think in recent like being caught i guess predatory uh, association with gambling and stuff like i I guess one can always see it like that because i guess the target audience would Mm. be perhaps uh children or Mm. young adults who might not really understand uh, i guess uh with Maturely what what these things are. They just see the button they press, it charges, let's say, five dollars per, per time. Oh yeah. Like so that, I yeah. mean
1: the whole um thing on children, I mean, that's an entire different concept mm. altogether, right? Obviously, I'm talking with the assumption that you are an adult yeah. who yeah, has control of your money. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think it's interesting because when they first introduced all these ideas of DLCs, mm. expansion passes, mm. and even microtransactions, what I what what fascinated me was that gaming did what? I guess movies, mm. uh, older mediums like radios, like mm-hmm. uh, TV, couldn't really do. What, mm. what I mean by that is like they give you a free product, mm-hmm. they hook you in with X amount of entertainment, and mm-hmm. then they make you pay, and you're more willing to pay in that sense. And they're not afraid that people are not willing to pay. Mm. Most people, let's say uh, a game like Genshin, they mm. can play. They They can play the game without paying anything. Mm. But the the economy is sustained by. Players who are willing to pay not not uh, a big amount, yeah. but X amount, let's say for an expansion pass for like X number of months, mm. and it's incredible that they. I think the reports were like they they made back their the the, the money they they put into um, development in
1: a sh- yeah, stupid amount it's of like time. I think one month or something like it's that. Really, <laughs> yeah.
0: So I think just just from. Uh, not even just from a financial point of view, from a business point of view, I think yeah. that is particularly interesting. It's mm. like watching a movie, they give you the movie for free, but mm. midway the movie, they give you an option to extend the movie. Mm. Or they give you the option to to choose part two. Mm. I think that is what gaming has has, has uh, given mm. or has done to how uh, content is, is kind of marketed and strategized today.
1: Mm. So I think that is, I have very mixed feelings about it because mm. I, I, I do agree with everything you said. And how it helped games become such a, one of the, you know, biggest markets or industries in the world in terms of money wise. But on the other hand, I think that's where it really comes at a cost of the creative side of things what uh, do you to mean some by extent. It? Um, so I think that, for example, many indie games don't follow the same mm. model, right? And to me, a lot, um, and this is a very, very generous statement, but I do think that the all you know the whole microtransaction and, and the way games make money, when you go deep enough and you see who's running those companies, mm. the capitalist slant of it is very strong, mm. and okay. that kind of runs against, you know, what a lot of indie game companies want to do when they ex- want to really push the boundaries of game design and storytelling so then it becomes of like the starving artist argument again of like trying to sustain um and and compete in a space that's already so saturated you know where oh you know you you have it's all about the search uh uh the 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 search algorithms right it's all about the uh how do you appear you know top in the top 50 games on yep. the app store right like all these things are things that you have to navigate on top of being a creative that just wants to use games as a medium all right mm. i think that there is something to be said there that like it's just very difficult if if you are not a game designer that wants to pursue the um triple um, a route yep. yeah and i guess for me that one thing i'm still asking myself is what is that balance? How do how can we have both coexist and also thrive at the same time yeah. without you know one eat, consuming to the other? Um, so yeah, I I don't have an answer to that question, but I'm just kind of stating that like it, it comes at a cost of all these different indie games as well.
0: Yeah, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think last year I think the the mm-hmm. news reported that uh, I think Blizzard, uh, mm-hmm. Activision Blizzard actually they yeah. made I think record profits, but mm-hmm. they sacked quite a number of people. Oh yeah. And it's,
1: <laughs> it's, it's it's
0: heartbreaking <laughs> mm,
1: it is heartbreaking yeah yeah but also like not surprising not surprising i think maybe it's surprising for the games industry but uh, come on like, which big corporation hasn't done that mm. it has happened before in history Mm-mm-mm. right and when you think about it like that it's like yeah that's that's what you get you know a mega big corporation profit-driven mm. right that's what they do and and so like and I think maybe for, for, I think that's where games is such an interesting thing because it's, it's like this, um, combination of like many things. It's technology, yep. it's art, yep. it's, you know, entertainment, but it's also a business. And then it's mm. also, like there is so many things because of the interdisciplinary aspect of it. Um, may, many gamers just, see it as like this is something that i enjoy when i come back from work mm. but then there's so much going on behind the scenes yep. so news like that may seem very surprising you know but yeah in, in the grand scheme of like companies in general is not but it's yeah. interesting
0: when, when conceptualizing the idea of uh triple a publishers like your ubisoft like your uh, mm. call of duties your FIFA's, your yep. your assassin and stuff there are still breakout titles with regards to indie studios mm. and solo developers. I think yeah. uh, things that come yeah. to mind is yeah. Stardew Valley, yeah, of uh, Undertale, yeah. uh, The Binding of Isaac. Yeah. There are still uh, these hits that have a very like different uh, following to them. Mm. Like They gain such notoriety. Uh, I think part and parcel to the help of Steam. Yeah. To the help of, I guess, it's interesting because... Journalism and, and media related to gaming used to be magazines, yep. uh, maybe TV ads, um, not even TV ads back then, but mostly magazines mostly and they would report on the games, yep, the games. Uh, get features. Yep. But now you have uh, YouTube, you have Twitch, yep. you have people can stream the game, you can, people can do analysis on the games. And I think that, I won't say economy, but that culture of, of content creation around the games kind of really boosts, mm. uh, Titles that you might not have never heard of, like let's say the 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 creator release. So so what's been of fastages to me lately is like, uh, I think Toby Fox released Undertale. I think close to a decade ago, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. was a uh, I don't know if it was a hit back then, but it was a hit and. I think up to today, there are still people creating fan out of it, like fan fiction of it. Mm. And they have it's very, very fleshed out fan fiction with their own characters based off the characters in Undertale. And then more people are piling onto it and they're just creating and reiterating and creating mm. um characters of characters of characters. But, yeah. And I think even a decade on, the game is still strong. Yeah. Like people are still willing to pay for it. And it's it's interesting, like, like the space at which um the idea of being an indie developer, an indie studio, yeah. there is a platform to compete. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is more of a winding road. It is not as easy and it is definitely, definitely difficult, but there is a, a fighting chance.
1: Yeah. No, I've, for sure. I, it's just that I think when I think about it, it's also like which country you're from, mm. right? And, and I think to contextualize it of like why, you know, uh, what this podcast is, right? Like in Singapore, right? It is extremely difficult, you know, because if only such a small percentage of games have the reputation of Undertale, for example, or even Hades, right, by Supergiant Games. Like, all these are in countries that already have the environment for it, you know? Like, there's a reason why um, I actually nearly considered... Um, graduating in like doing my last year of the Japan in uh, Redmond the Redmond branch instead of Singapore mm. because when you graduate from the Redmond branch, you actually can apply for many of the game companies that are there mm. especially in Seattle like there are a lot yep, of them yep, over there yep, yep, right and that is such a already such a great opportunity for you to uh work in an already established company and yep. even if you're not like a, on undertale level right you're still going to do decently well because of how huge the market is mm-hmm. in singapore please la, no <laughs> you know like it's it's the size of it is really no compete yeah right i'm not criticizing singapore it's just a fact yeah and and especially because we're so much younger compared to there we we have a lot less resources uh so i think that is the uphill challenge of of being an indie developer in Singapore, and and I, I mean that's why I do the work that I do because ultimately I recognize that the formula for success in for an indie company in the states definitely has to be very different if you're a Singapore indie company, right? Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we navigate and find our own unique way of yep. success in the context of Singapore? Um, so yeah, and, and and I think also like, but if. I mean, I, I, I also do think that there are certain key factors besides, um, you know, having such a great product, you know, for it to be successful. So I had the opportunity of uh, speaking to uh, Eduardo, um, one of the designers for Hades. Um, yeah, very cool. It was a, oh my God, fanboy moment. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, some of the things that he was sharing with me was that in in Giant games, like, you know, part of the reason why they're so successful is because they have no crunch culture, mm. you know. You, you must go back at a certain time, yep. right? And and communications uh, are off after certain hours. Um, and, you know, I think, especially COVID, they still handled it pretty well as yep. well, right? And then all that led them mm-hmm. to winning basically Game of <coughs> the Year and, and I was, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that really is a testament to like, one of the things that we have as a, you know, we are very, a lot of game companies are very guilty of crunch uh, crunch yes. culture. You know because what, you, what is
0: crunch culture
1: so crunch culture mm-hmm. is uh when you have to work you know outside of your regular working hours mm-hmm. sometimes unpaid mm-hmm. just so that you can ship the product or the game on time because mm-hmm. usually you promise um, a certain investor that you ship it on this date right or you promise your players that these features will be implemented mm-hmm. so if you don't you know, if it's not done by that date, then you've effectively failed and yep. you might be, you know, um, um, uh, flouting some contractual agreement. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, you have no choice but to crunch, right? And it's always the grunts that get the the, the brunt of it, right? And for super giant Games, how they did it is they didn't have those investors that controlled them. You know, they did it on their own terms. And I think that's why... Uh, the team worked so well and hardly anybody left and during the entire development cycle, which is unheard of for many, 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 many yeah. companies. You know, and, and I think those are the things that make it more critical to an indie company successfully taking off. Uh, rather than like, oh, I'm lucky enough to find a cool idea that mm. appeals to people. Yeah. yeah. Did mm. you watch the
0: the No of Clip course. documentary? Of
1: course. <laughs> I, I and I, I mean I had to even, you know, because I was going to speak to him, I was like, yeah, I don't want to look like, I don't know them, so, yeah. But I already knew about them, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> For those of you who are listening, go watch a no-clip documentary on Supergiant Games, specifically the Hades creation. Yeah. So, I think what, what is interesting... So, I, I'm i a big fan of indie games. Yeah. And I buy games based off of people's uh, analysis uh, of them, of mm. the different games, documentaries, mm. and how people do uh, lore videos of them. So, so, so mm. those are my... Uh, go to videos like if, if there's this particular game let's say celeste or let's say the Binding of isaac or go to URL search mm. if there's any documentaries what they speak about it so what did you learn uh from from speaking to to the the individual from supergiant games
1: well i mean i think what i learned from him was i was also very interested about his own personal journey because like I mean he's a game designer, he's younger than me, and I was like, Oh my god, you're younger than me and you have a job in Super Giant games, like, oh my god. (laughs) I'm so jealous of you. Um and but what you know, he explained like his process of how he got there is because his portfolio like happened to match up exactly to the things that they wanted to do. It's like it was like, one for one, like, oh, mm. we want to do procedural generation. We want to do this, and that. And so, like, that's how he, you know, pro- the one of the strongest reasons why he got a job, right? And sometimes it's about also being there at the right time, in yep. the right place. Emphasis on place, which is why, you know, I say, yeah, location is very important. Some of my um, classmates uh, from the same batch. So, they did what I what I mentioned earlier, which is graduate from there. One of them has a job in Minecraft right now. Mm. Right. Two of them are working at other game studios. Right. Um and and so I think again, at this current moment, if you want to make it um and to 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 have an indie company, or you no, know, let's not talk about company, right? maybe just a general like game designer career. Um, knowing the right people is very important. So you may, and, and you being realistic about it, like you know that you're probably not going to achieve the same level of success as a, as a game designer if you're going to be based in Singapore compared to other bigger countries. Mm-hmm. And if you're okay with that, that's fine, right? Because not everybody has the means to go there mm. as well. Exactly. Um, I had plans to, but then I did my stint at civil service college and that kind of like change my life forever, which made me realize that I'm going to stay in Singapore. So it was a personal choice that I decided to pursue my career in Singapore because I have faith that we have enough resources and a network and a community to take it to the next level. And mm-hmm. I wanted to be part of that wave. Um, so, but if you want to start, set up a company right in Singapore, that's an even bigger challenge. And yep. I speak from firsthand experience. Yep. Um, and, and you're going to have to do a lot of homework because your education probably didn't prepare you. <laughs> right. And you're yeah. also not going to have a lot of um um the the business support network that other countries do because in other countries it's already well established the government is very pro games mm, right they mm. see the industry is booming so you're gonna have to either know some really rich friends or really knowledgeable friends from overseas to support your career or you're just gonna have to you know suck it up and and, and read up on everything that you can even if you hate it yeah you know one of the things that as a uh, owner of of this uh, Alter culture Studios is I have to learn about the financial stuff and it's so painful for me <laughs> I, I'm like can I don't do this can you do it for me you know but I have to because yep. otherwise like you know I wouldn't have a good sense of what's going on and I as the captain I need to know right so yeah setting a company games company in Singapore is very difficult but um, some things that I maybe, I don't know what Gwen might have mentioned, but you know, um, the association is looking into providing more support for newer companies, yeah. um, including some of the stuff relating to how to set up a business, yep. what resources you should turn to. to yep, yep. And I'm like, wow, that's, once that's ready, I think the newer companies will be so lucky because I didn't have that and I had to learn that from scratch. Yeah. yeah so
0: you meant because, she mentioned something of an ecosystem mm-hmm. and I think that that kind of yeah. uh, feeds into what you said so do you it sounds like it isn't just a problem about education because mm. you mentioned something about what your your stint in DigiPen it, it yeah. kind of uh, prepares you for the industry not for the indie uh, developer yeah. life but more for into the pipeline so yeah. It seems like a, a, a multi-pronged problem where first it's education, mm. second, perhaps it's the, the the cultural consciousness of it. Yeah. And perhaps lastly, it's uh, investors slash, I guess, government and and how how they would view the medium because mm. I think I was I was looking into uh, the gaming industry in South Korea mm. and
1: mm. Mm.
0: it's interesting because South Korea kind of had the war with North Korea mm. and stuff like that. They have a lot of strife between them, and K-pop kind of grew um from the 1980s. If 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 you track the history of regards to how K-pop got popular, mm. it's it's really like a, how do I say it? It's it's interesting how K-pop could could kind of grow and be cultivated inside South Korea and be exported out mm. to the the the. On the global stage, mm-hmm. and how they, they, the the government kind of supported the, the gaming industry in that yeah. sense, mostly the esports industry. Yeah. And then I guess it spread it down towards the gaming industry. So, yeah. would you see that, uh, do you see these changes being applied to Singapore perhaps in the future?
1: So, you're saying that we have, huh? So, when you use South Korea as a, I guess a reference, are you saying that we're gonna have our own like Singapore <laughs> pop group and then that's gonna like where no, I I, the... I think
0: South Korea is a very interesting comparison because they even up to the nineteen eighties to nineteen mm. nineties, mm. they were still behind in, in certain facets, but they mm. were able to catch up and even uh exceed mm. certain mm. uh culturally, let's say for music, for for, for K-pop for example, and for e mm. they were able to exceed what anybody thought of that. Mm. I think back then, they were perhaps being compared to Japan. And then back then, Japan had a boom in economy. But South Korea really, uh, uh, mm. really took control and really pushed out mm. all these different cultural exports. So I'm just mm. wondering, because of, of, of the time back in the Japan back then and the climate now, hopefully it's different. Hopefully things have changed mm. a little bit. And are you optimistic about how things might be? Um, not just about for for students, Uh. In Japan or for students time to be mm. a game designer, but perhaps the 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 climate of mm. let's say someone says oh I want to make I want to be a game designer mm. and they're really serious about it, there mm. are uh, adequate tools and I guess support mm. to
1: to mm. to really push these things out. So I mean the fact that I'm doing this company and I chose to stay in Singapore means I'm. I have to be optimistic, right? Because if I was pessimistic, I wouldn't do this. Mm, fair, fair enough. Right, right, yeah. But I I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be realistic about Mm-mm. the current state as well. Um, and I think as it stands, it's just really challenging because I think that... So one thing I always ask myself is how many game designers think about, you know, their future in terms of or rather when they think about their future, what does that look like? I think many of them, it may stop at, I want to make a really cool game, mm. right? And that's normal. I think that was for me as well, right, right? I want to join Herstone. Wanna... But if you want to make it in Singapore, an evolving industry that has, you know, not as much infrastructure as the other industries, right? It's relatively new. Government still is in the process of learning it. You gotta be a change maker, and that means you gotta be able to accept that you might have to deviate from your original dream. And I speak from experience. Like yep. right now, I'm not exactly working on a uh, Hearthstone-like game, yep. right? Um, I did it because I, I, I was like, okay, there, there, the, the, there seem the strong surge of interest in using games, uh, outside of entertainment is there. Right, if I were to help to think about the industry in the long run, more if more people use games in a quote unquote serious manner. I don't like the word, but you know, for the sake of this, <laughs> right? Um then the perception of games will be changed. And then perhaps there'll be a big bigger market for mm. games as a medium of entertainment as well. Right. And that that's how I I chose to believe this is the right direction for me to go. And I'm not saying that this is the only direction people should pursue. So like, even when I bring this up to my, some of my game designer mates, I think some of them look at me as if like, I'm speak, speaking a foreign language because they did not have the experience that I had with civil service and the yep. other corporations. Yep. And that's fine. But my, my, my point is, I think your, the way that you see, uh, you know, your dream in Singapore as a game designer has to evolve and shift because we, we are not there yet, you know? And, and so how do you make yourself um, valued by, be it by the Singapore government or be it by the indie studios or the association, right? Yeah, how do you contribute and, 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 and think about it in a more bigger perspective, you know, beyond what you're already doing? Mm. And I think that is, that might sound unfair, to put that responsibility on game designers in Singapore, but it's also the reality of it, you know? And that's why, um, you know, to me, if you're not ready to go, you know, if you want to continue working in the AAA because you have commitments to your own life, right? You want to start a family on that, please, by all means, you should. Mm. Because, you know, the work of an indie developer in Singapore or an artist that uses games it's not going to be an easy one. doesn't sound easy. Full stop. It isn't. It isn't. But I wouldn't do it any other way because it gives me so much fulfillment. And being in contact with so many wonderful people in the industry, you know, I had so many deep, meaningful conversations because of the work that I do, because I get to talk to all these creatives. And I think that's what, you know, I would like my life to be about, right? And that's my personal choice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think mm. even despite the the lack of infrastructure, even public yeah. support, there are still uh breakout hits in Singapore regards mm. indie. I think mm. what comes to mind is I guess Cat Quest and uh, yeah. the folks at Battle Brew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Fantastic. Mm. So, what influenced your decisions to start Autoculture? You, you you spoke a couple of times about your time in civil service college. Yeah. What what happened? <laughs>
1: yeah. So I think. One very interesting thing about civil service college is, you know, the so the innovation unit that I was working in is called uh, a Learning Futures Group. Okay. Very Singaporean. And very Singaporean. <laughs> but the culture is quite the opposite of that. Mm. If anything, it really functions quite like a startup. Um, because they are constantly on the lookout for innovative things, it means that you need people who are troublemakers. People mm. who are able to question and critically think everything that the college does. Yep. Right? Right? very uncivilized (laughs) um but but i think it really works out and so the people that i work with in there like they are a phenomenal team and i you know despite the fact i'm not with them anymore i'm still you know i'm still associate trainer uh with them and i still come into contact with many of them and one thing that um when i started out as an intern over there was that they gave me the full power beyond an intern like i was doing projects that a standard civil servant would do and i took charge of it and and, you know there was room for me to 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 make mistakes um and and choose what i want to do and Mm -hmm. what i want to learn and that full agency while having the support of the team whenever i need help in something was probably the biggest growth spurt i ever had in my life and um, it changed the way that i started to think about how I wanted to to position myself in, in my career yeah. as well, um, so I I think that 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 is why I, you know what we did. Was also quite related to what I'm doing now. Uh, in there, I was also designing um serious games. I was running serious games. So there are many, or there are already a lot of games being used in civil service that I learned how to run. And yeah. because of that, I also understand the design framework, right? And teaching the classes, doing uh, networking events, mm-hmm. like all these things are things I'm doing right now in my company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just that I saw that I fulfill this very unique position of being on the outside and so i'm almost like a right arm to this unit in in many cases mm. um because when you're in there right you there are just certain things you can't do right because you're bounded by rules yep. but out here i can do whatever i want yep um and then and that's why i was like okay you know what i don't want my first job to be a civil servant <laughs> <laughs> um but 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 i wasn't against the idea like it was really like my second choice if yep. this thing didn't work out yep. you know so i was like i'm going to try this first uh, before i go back in and so I, I'm, I'm still deciding if you know I, i'm not quite sure whether this is going to be 100 percent successful it looks like it is but if it isn't successful i'll probably go back to civil service college um so you're so, still trying it to this day yeah, so future <laughs> self is going to listen back on this and laugh probably
0: <laughs> so um, what why did <laughs> So do do help me to understand yeah. why did they give you so much autonomy and agency, or was mm. it just the way things were run in there?
1: Um, I think I so I had a very wonderful uh, supervisor. Her name was uh, her was, she is she's alive, Adeline Chin, <laughs> uh Dell. And I think, you know, one I think it's be, they they are, they know that for such innovative work to be done right they it needs a certain type of person which mm-hmm. is the troublemaker personality like what i'm doing now is also quite troublemakerly. right i'm not following some certain blueprint you know i'm constantly pushing the boundaries of s- certain things like game design they are looking for people who think like that and so when they interview people they don't it's actually quite hard to hire people uh because there's no set rubric yep. it's very instinctual yep yep and I remember in my interview, like I went there and by the end of the interview, I got the job. Like literally she was like, okay, you're hired. I'm like, oh, what? So it's a vibe check. Yeah, it was a vibe check. And <laughs> when they know, they know. And everybody in the team is like that, mm. you know. So I I think because of that, they, they all, we all also don't like people to hold us down. Like, because, <laughs> you know, if you want to make trouble, we don't want so much rules, right? Yeah. So to allow us to flourish, I think that's, that's, that's why they also gave me so much agency to pursue what I want. And it worked. Yeah. In fact, I learned things there that were not games related. And oh. yeah. So there is this thing that's going to sound very dry, but it's a lot more interesting in my eyes. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's called... um, uh. So it, they, they learn about evaluation over there, right? Like, how do you judge if something is good? Mm. How do you know if the logic behind whatever change that you're trying to make is... Uh, sound logically yep. speaking so i i had to plan and teach a whole workshop to the whole public service around it so it was just and the story of how i got that 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 gig was so funny because one of my colleagues and he was one just like um if anybody want to help out you know in this thing that i'm doing um please come to the room later and volunteer yourself and she has a degree in the subject, okay. <laughs> and so i was like okay i'm new i'm just going to go in and check it out and then i was the only one yeah. and then i was like wait i'm the only one and then like this is some like really fierce looking uh, uh, woman over there just like oh hi and but uh, and and she's a good friend of mine she's amazing and um and so because of that i've actually applied that to my work even now mm-hmm. whenever we design a game we will always chart out a logic model of like, why is it that we're creating this game? You know, why do we think that this game is going to work? Uh, how do we know after we conduct this game, right? What's the criteria that we're using to evaluate mm. whether the game was effective in yep. bringing about change, right? Which is why we call alter culture. Yep. And and so, learning about all these like non-game stuff is also very useful because it helps the business, right? Uh, and I, I I think, again, right, in DigiPen, because everything's so games-focused, Yep not having that, you know, is is gonna hurt in terms of like, you know, and they they always say that some of the best words come about when two industries or two skills different skill sets collaborate and come together, right? And it, it applies here as well, you know. And and so I think it's really good to be exposed to things outside of the games industry yep. too to be a better game designer. I'm yeah,
0: assuming yeah, yeah. that you're learning things on the job as well.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because but, it
0: sounds to me like it's it's not so much about the game but you're learning more about the psychology of people and Mm. how to 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 i guess uh put them through a certain situation for them to learn a certain thing yeah Am, am i right in trying to assume that
1: yeah of course especially when you're creating games that are trying to teach a certain concept like empathy leadership right um I I like I remember there would be many game designers that like oh they want to teach a game about mental health and they kind of stop short at like oh you know um let's the 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 character you know also has some kind of like you know men, uh, mental health issue and yep. then the story art and like. I'm not saying that it hasn't been done well, but I often question, like, you know, how do you know that this medium of work is actually going to bring about the change that you intended? Mm. You know, is it just all in your head? Yep. You know, and and do you actually understand, for example, uh, what are the fundamentals of learner psychology? Um, right, and I think that is also where I learned something. Oh, right. Sorry, throw back to the question about how I how I change. My, my opinion of gaming has... Uh, games has changed, right? Like, um, they often say that games are a very good medium for learning. Mm. I mean, even within the games industry, they try to preach preach that. But often I, might, I find that, you know, for example, some of our lecturers, <laughs> <laughs> right? They're not great teachers because they're not trained as teachers. So, I don't blame them. They're not trained as teachers, but sure. they're brought in as such. Yep. Right? Um, when they make the games for learning purposes they are thinking about it from a game's perspective, right? But, the so the people in the team in the gaming unit, I was the only game designer, game designer. Everybody else was not in game, that was working on games, not in game design. They came from a learning and development background. Mm. And that's because they understand learner psychology, <laughs> learner frameworks. And when you put the two together, that it makes sense. And that's where the game feels very different. And the learning is more impactful as well. You know, and, and so uh yeah i think that's that's the key to 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 coming up with like these sorts of games too interesting so
0: who is who is outer culture for let's say for the workshops that you guys do
1: so outer culture is for i mean we're trying to build this ecosystem of people who want to use games uh, outside of entertainment that's basically it. so everything that we do is driven towards that Right. We welcome both a lot of, um, people from the games industry that, uh, want to do a company that's games as a service. So, for example, uh, you have a game studio like Lionfish Studios, like they, they make games, um, that are for clients, right? They don't really come out of their own IP Mm -hmm. as much, right? Um, and, and we also invite people from the non-games industry, like, public service corporations right uh or if you want to make a game for insurance for example uh yes insurance and i'll get to that in a minute like that that will be something that you know we would help you as well right so we could design the games um but the education so the game design classes came about because one i have that background of teaching the game design classes uh two i realized that many a times people would come to us, um, and these are from not the games industry, right? And they say, I want to do a game. But they don't understand why uh, a game, what a game is or why a game should be used. Like, there's some that literally say things that are basically, oh, I want to use a game to brainwash target players, right? That's not what they say, but it's literally that, right? But they don't (laughs) think about it. They don't see it as as brainwashing, right? And I'm just like, no, you got to... I, I, wouldn't want to make a game for you, but I'm also ethical, right? Like, I, I, I don't want to be part of your, you know, uh, problematic situation. So, um, that's why the education part came about because I'm like, no, we are going to teach you first before we have the discussion of making the game, mm. you know? Um, and, and so this Alter culture studios came about uh, with my other co-founder. His name is uh, David Cabral. Um, he's currently stuck in Portugal. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, but, unfortunately. you know, he, So he's like... He has 30 years in the insurance uh, business. So he's not a game designer. Well... Yeah. But we have many, many long conversations over the course of like a year... Um, over the usage of games mm. um, uh, in, in a serious manner and so I mentioned insurance earlier because of him right and I introduced him to a game like for example pandemic I'm sure yeah you know yeah <laughs> the and, all too real game <laughs> yeah exactly and there are two types right there's the board game edition where you're playing as people trying to solve the pandemic and then there's the other one where you're playing as the virus and you you know try to become more powerful by adding yep. skill points and in both games right actually it is very useful because unlike a actual simulation like they already have mathematical models to to predict the behavior of uh the virus right but what happens in these games is that you can predict human behavior the, the conscious choice yeah exactly or not conscious maybe even irrational behavior right like like as we can see a lot of people are freaking irrational in this pandemic and when if you were to play the pandemic game, actually some of these behaviours may not be as surprising, Mm. right? So rather than say, oh, we can... Or rather maybe predict the... Uh, the behavior will happen it's not the right way to put it but rather we can prepare for it because we know that this is a possibility that it might happen because humans can be irrational right and so that's how he was like oh yeah then this would be really good for the insurance industry because they often make policies that do not account for the human element um, when and and just you know do right so um, that's where that's why we started this because we want to see more games like that being used be it for you know, a more business reason, be it for a more leadership reason uh, to teach soft concepts uh, or even for a more artistic reason. So we we also are in contact with a lot of artists in Singapore yep. that, you know, use the games. Yeah, so people who push the boundaries of games and use it in different ways outside of entertainment. Mm. Yeah, that's what we do. What have
0: you noticed mm. that is common or keeps standing up to you Uh, throughout the... The audiences and the people you have taught before. Mm. What 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 stands out to you?
1: Or is mm. it, it
0: could be a problem. It could be an issue. But
1: are it we is talking constant. about the client side or the games as a service side,
0: whichever you're comfortable to share?
1: Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, the games as a service side. One thing they always have issues with is the client not understanding the games and the pipeline, right? And and that's why the education exists because we we help to bridge that gap for them because they, a lot of, look, a lot of game designers are introverts, okay? Like, they're not <laughs> comfortable talking to people enough, yeah. and it's a bit of a stereotype but generally speaking, if they, if you give them an option, they don't want to talk as much. They just want to do, yep right? And that's great because I don't like to do. I like to talk. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so like, I think that's how I compliment these games as a service guys, right? Like, we really help to put their work out there and uh, often, my favorite part of my job is to take two artists or, or game game companies and be like, hey, I think you all can collaborate and come together and help each other out. And I've done it so many times. It's one of the most fulfilling things. And before that, they didn't know each other. Mm. But because of me, now they do, mm. right? Um, and then for the client side, it's, you know, the, the common thing is what I said earlier about, you know, not using, understanding the concept of games, Um but also the fact that they underestimate themselves as game designers so i i i I, so for me one thing that i always mention in my game design class is that actually everybody is a game designer they just don't know it yet right we think about when we are children in a playground right we come up with our own rules right we are already game designers and because we move into adulthood we lose that freedom and creativity to come up with our own rules and actually that's That's why it's so abstract that games can be literally anything that has Mm -hmm. an element of like play and rules to it. And that's why I often push, you know, these uh, participants in the, the classes, right? Like, hey, you are also a game designer. You just need more experience and practice a bit more and you can get there. Like, you don't necessarily need to fully depend on me to do all the thinking. Because the mistake of relying on the game designer too much is the game designer is not part of your industry you mm. know so they also the game designer also has to learn all the things about your industry the the complexities the nuances you know and and they and you can't expect them to uh understand the target audience as much as you do so if you're not the the client from the non games industry you also need to know something about game design, mm. right? And that's how you're going to collaborate with each other. And so, I mean, that that is the common thing that I face, that people underestimate themselves as game designers. They think that, oh, I'm not a game designer, therefore I don't do that thinking, right? Like, and and I, I'm like, no, you should. And it's also because it's fun, mm. right? I often see like people come out of their first game in my class and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course you can like, you can. It is, you, you You always had it in you. I think largely
0: depends on the type of framework that, that you're looking at that yeah. is true, right? Because when you say, when you mention it, let's say if the idea of games is creating a set of rules and I guess running through it. Yeah. I guess everyone kind of does that in, in their own lives. Of I mean, it's not just about of having to, to play through a screen and yeah. do
1: whatever. <laughs> on the boardroom room with the cigars, like, I want to play a game, right? <laughs> yeah, like we, we come up with all sorts of games. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Teach children as well Yeah So um, The children part Is something that Came along to me um, Because I Was approached um, By this company Called Praxium So Praxium does Like this thing Where they do Career pathways Programs In different schools Trying to get them To think about Their future Beyond Their you know post-secondary Or post-JC education Right And um, I come in Because Obviously What I do is Quite unheard of Like Literally There are are quite a few circles of of Acquaintances that I'll go to Uh, I remember there was this one guy He said to me um, I had met him before But a long time ago And I came back again I reintroduced myself And he's like Oh yeah, I remember you because like you're the only game designer I've ever met. Like it's, it's so niche, right? And I think it's important that we gain some visibility as a games industry. A lot of these students don't know that it's a career. Heck, I certainly didn't know until I was like in my <laughs> early twenties. So, um, yeah. And, and I think me doing those, uh, engagements is my way of also, I mean, giving back. Um, but it is also very surprising and fulfilling at the same time. One thing that, Challenge my notions of what a you know a student can do. Uh, I was in this group of uh, 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 SJI this SJI class, and I had this activity where I get them to design a game uh, based on what they like. So they have Fair this enough. like tabletop game that design on the spot. We provide the materials, and then I will throw them a curveball. I said that all right, the investor says that you have to change your game design for a specific purpose, and then I give out a random purpose. So there was this group of um, uh, the students they they came up with a game which is about a, a, you play as like Nazis and it's a war based <laughs> game and like okay the call of <laughs> duty whatever <laughs> anyway and then and then the card that I gave them and this by chance was now you have to change your game such that it teaches your players about mental health interesting and they're oh, like immediately oh. their reaction is like oh my god like they're like <laughs> lost you know But then, right, I got them, after they come down and I got them to present their changes. Oh, oh, it was amazing. They said that, okay, the gameplay is the same. But after the game, you ask the question to the players, is it worth it? Because all the soldiers now have this like post-war trauma, right? And then that can start the conversation. And these came from secondary three kids, you know, like I was just so impressed by, you know, what they can come up with. Yeah. The other thing that made, was also quite cool was in my own game design class, the in-house one um so there was this um uh, mom that is super supportive of a daughter like pursuing game design as well, so she's like, hey, I'm gonna put together a, a you know a group of um and kids for you and you know would you want to teach?" And I said, you know usually I try not to because i'm I don't know how to be around kids sometimes." <laughs> for three hours with no teacher supervision, <laughs> but I'm going to try anyway. Yeah, so I yeah. said, yes, right. And they came in, right, at first very shy. I said, hi, hi. And then I said, you know, oh, all, you know that whatever you see on the, mat- the table, the prototyping materials, you know, class hasn't started, but like, feel free to mingle and touch. You know, you know usually with adults, they are very respectful and they just sit down and, and wait for me to start. The kids immediately went to work and made their board games without, before the class even started. Wow. And I'm like, that is literally what I crave for in adults, you know? So, the, the class is called the Paper Playground. That's the name of the mm. game design class. And it's called the Paper Playground because when we design games at the very beginning, we even as a digital game, you use paper, right? Fair I thought about paper yep. earlier. Um, and I wanted the class to feel like a playground. Like, you're supposed to be there and come out with the rules and play. And that's what literally the kids did. They literally made their own playground out of paper. And again, that is why I feel like kids in many ways are better game designers than adults, because they don't have all that restrictions yep. and they can be free creatively, right? And and yeah, I, I that's that's my experience teaching kids and it's been a blast. So
0: but it's far. more of a, let's say speaking from the perspective of an adult joining one of these classes, it's more about rediscovering that isn't yeah. it's not about learning anything new, but it's more about rediscovering that the fact that you can play in yeah. in the 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 rules that you create yourself
1: well i also think that again it's because of the fact that many adults in this current age they probably don't play as much games as kids right Fair so the, yeah. the exposure to it you know you're like oh the last time i played a game was when i was a kid right or even in sports it feels something more physical you tend to think of it as something more physical right and and you play the same game over and over again like you're Especially if you watch soccer, I'm just like, there's nothing fascinating about soccer. It's, it's the same rule every single... Okay, anyway, that's my personal bias, but whatever. Um, so like, yeah, I think because of that, you know, they, adults just don't have the exposure and the opportunities to flex their creative brain um, as much as kids do. And that's really what it boils down to.
0: So when what are you anticipating when the Twitch generation and the, the YouTube gaming generation grows up what are you anticipating you do anticipate more adoption mm. because mm. what you just said is, is it rings true to a certain degree like mm. our parents yeah. or parents' parents and they might not have that much exposure yeah. their exposure could be like soccer football yeah. uh, things like that yeah. but we are coming from a generation where like some of us has played Pokemon to Counter-Strike to Dota that we it is it is almost like a second language to us we, we know what uh when when someone says a headshot, we know we kind of have an image of what that means. Yeah. So and that would kind of translate to how we uh perhaps introduce uh the the, the children that we have mm-hmm. in the future to, mm-hmm. to gaming as well. Yeah. So do you do you foresee like a wider adoption or mm. more acceptance with regards to it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good question because it ultimately boils onto the parents, right? Because the parents do control. I mean one example I like to bring about is, like, my mom. Mm. Um, so whenever I go to these uh, game design classes to schools, um, part of my slideshow is that um, I would show a photo of my mom disapproving, you know, me playing games. And so it's this photo of me that I'm, like, rolling my eyes, my my gaming headset while my mom, <laughs> like, scolds me. Like, we just took that photo for, for my <laughs> class, right? But it's a depiction of how I grew up. Mm. And then the next photo I show is my mom. She's at her desk working from home doing work with double screens. Whoa. And then like she's on her phone playing Merge Dragons while doing work right and i'm like see like my mom is a hypocrite um <laughs> and i and i believe that this generation of parents they definitely grew up with games right and even if it's a mobile extent like they are going to definitely be more open to the idea of their kids playing games i think my only concern is that most of them are still belonging to the mobile game kind of environment and as such maybe the understanding of games is limited to these games where they know themselves that they are addicted to it and they don't <laughs> want their kids to follow the same behavior. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have ways to go in, in, in teaching, right? These, uh, uh, this generation of gamers, uh, who are already parents, like, yeah. hey, you know, there are other games out there mm. and they can be positive yep. for your ki- kids as well. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's why I teach adult classes because that's also my ta- target demographic. Yeah.
0: So, with regards to the people that you have thought thus far, um, do you or are you aware of any parallels uh, back to when you were doing PT?
1: Are there similarities? Um, yeah, I think I always, you know, I think one reason why I was so good at sales, and it's not because I have sales training. Was, what but, exactly is sales training? <laughs> I mean, so, one thing that, you know... It, well uh, my, my dad is a salesman and there's a certain adages that, you know, probably stick with me. But at least for me it was all about like instead of thinking about how do I sell this, it's about how do I help the client. Right? And so my question is how do I help you? Mm-hmm. What are your needs? What are the things that you are currently, you know, trying to achieve and and, and therefore I think about the plans that I need to get you there, mm. right? I tell you this is the com- commitment of time and so, you know, if you want to reach there, I will help you get there, right? And and, and I think, I also think a lot about the, the, the class... Um, that I teach, the exercises that I made them go through, right? I think about the overall experience, right? You gotta, it's like a curve, right? An yep. intensity curve. Yep. You can't start off too, too intensely, and you also gotta get a calming down at the end. And even the design of the studio itself is kind of like level design in games, right? Like you think about what is the first thing that people see when they come step into the studio? Uh, What is the, how do they start their session? Who is the first person in greet? You know, when they shower, what are the things that is around them. You know, must make sure it's clean, right? I also, yeah. the experience is <laughs> yes. very important. And and how do they leave the space, right? How do you get them to come back again? Like, it's all about the experience. And I think that that is why you know when I t- say to the participants of the game design class, whatever you learned here is also going to be relevant outside because we always, uh, unless you're in some very very like methodical procedural like work, it doesn't change. You often need to shape some sort of experience. Like your conversations with people, your presentation, and I think, in a way, designing games help you pr- practice that side of you as well. Um, and and I I I would like to think that um, the interactions that I get with my clients make me very um, comfortable in, in just basically being um, uh, in, interact interactive oh my god no words <laughs> <Being>
0: interactive
1: <laughs> i'm an interactive game um no being um more comfortable with just talking to people in general mm. um because that has always been my strong suit even in school my first on my very first day of school i went up to my lecturers and some of the seniors and i gave them my name card whoa <laughs> and it was a game design like it was a card from one of my games but i reshaped it into a game uh, name card and i introduced myself and i said this yeah. is what i do right and like that came from my what i did as a trainer as well because mm-hmm. i started out working first yep. so all those things were carried over into the way that i worked yep. in school too yep. yeah
0: very yeah. interesting in, in noticing the, the participants of your, your game design classes yep. let's say for the adults do you feel like the classes are mm. kind of in a weird way, giving them permission to imagine and to have fun and to think outside of the box a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah? definitely. I think it's very freeing for them. And it challenges their notions of what games are and mm-hmm. games can be, gives them more confidence to think about applying games to their line of work, right? Like, oh yeah, actually, maybe I can come up with something and test it myself and then I'll come back to Jedi and you know see how he responds to mm-hmm. it. Like One thing we always give them is we will give them like a free gift at the end where it's two hours worth of consultation hmm. so they can choose to come back and bring back their in-game oh, prototype yeah. explore ideas right fear of charge and that's a way of encouraging people to not you know s- not feel like there's a barrier to designing the game so I think that's what we try to achieve too
0: and not just like things taper off after the class yeah. like there is one to I guess be kind of accountable
1: to like a uh, bridge build, 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 build off this really yeah and you can say that oh that's also sales right and maybe there's some truth to that maybe yeah. maybe I, I did come up you know with this because um of my sales background and everything but again like I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with sales right at the end of the day what's your motivation mm. you want to help people then yeah I mean then you should also be paid for yep. you know doing the work yep. yeah
0: what have you noticed about how people of different age group and
1: how they learn Ooh, wow, that's such a different age groups. Hmm. Or
0: are there similarities or other differences?
1: I mean, so see, this is such a complex topic because I think that it has to do with our education system. Our wonderful education system. Our wonderful meritocratic uh, education (laughs) system. And I have so much mixed feelings about that, but let me try to maybe contextualize it to 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 games right? I think I think that games are great because you create a set of rules and then they have to f- figure out the rules, and then they the step that's often missing is how do I break the rules right? So I'm like I'm like actually, if you are an active you know gamer. Your, your understanding of systems in general should be pretty strong Mm. because you understand how the wheels turn in in order to be good at the games. I'm talking about very serious players, right? And therefore, I see some correlation between the very, 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 very serious gamers and like what they do. Like, I often see that in real life, they also tend to exhibit such signs of like being able to do really complex jobs or tasks, you know, and their learning is also as such. Um, but, for the more casual gamers, then it's often about very instantaneous gratification or short-term gratification Mm. um, because they see it more as an escape rather than a a way to exercise their mind in a very different way. Mm. And I think that's where the learning is probably not as strong compared to the first group that I talked about, Mm. you know. And so I think for me, um, I'm, I'm not saying that there's, again, no value in that, but I do think there is, you know, they should at least give it a chance as a way to see it as, you know maybe exercising my mind in a different way can also be seen as relaxation you know like one of the things that i do when i am drunk is that i like to get out my phone and I take you stone because it calms me down it gets my mind to be tuned in a different way right like that's a very interesting example i know but uh, but it's also the very straightforward of saying that yeah you you know it's not a tiring activity um if if you you know see it in a very different way and and most of the time, it's because they don't see games as an opportunity for learning. And there's no one there to show them that side of games as well. Um, especially because of the way uh, games are being sold to many of them right now. Mm. You know? yeah.
0: It's interesting that games can be used as a tool for education. Not saying it's like an education-based game, but yeah. different games can be used to teach different things. And I think this kind of pushes the idea of learning outside the classroom.
1: Yeah, do you know there was a tuition centre at uh, Tower IHQ where, like, Mm. they closed down already, but they used uh, board games to teach kids certain, Mm. like, concepts. That is interesting. Yeah. So, the, the board games, the commercial board games were a tool, but and they repurposed it to teach things, right? And, yeah, and it's the same thing with any other games. Like, it's all about the strategic thinking, critical thinking, right? System interactions. And, yeah, all those things are opportunities for learning, which is why maybe I have a general aversion towards games that dull the mind. You know, like, for example, like, like f- so, personal uh, no bias. <laughs> um, any, any like, slot machine games, right? Where you ins- literally gotcha. just insert okay, a coin okay. and, you know, that to me is just, um um, what's that term again? Box, what box? What's the word I'm thinking about? The one with the monkeys and the bananas. No, no. Jack in the box? No, no, no the one with the... Uh, it's a it's a it's a psychology one. Skinner's box. That's right. Yes, it's it's no those Skinner box games that literally there is no need for any thinking and just it's just pure pushing and fireworks. Mm -hmm. Like I think once in a while that's fine, but when it turns into a a thing that consumes a huge part of your day. That might be a reflection of something that's going on in your life. <laughs> but that's just my personal opinion, not yeah. a professional one. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think the idea of uh games are being a lot or is a lot more pervasive than we realise. Mm. Like I think the idea or the word or the buzzword these days is gamification. Mm. Like everything's being gamified. Mm. I think uh, instagram facebook social media um right down to i think gmail i think the, the way certain buttons mm. and colors they are mm. very very carefully placed mm. and how notifications appear to us mm. let's say on the screen mm. or even on the desktop how yeah. chrome opens up how certain applications open up a lot of these things have engineers and developers and psychologists have yeah. a lot of thought being put in it yeah. and does it worry you? Or are you cognizant of uh, this, these ideas like being uh, portrayed to you in such a fashion?
1: No, I, I think at the end of the day, it always boils down to intent, you okay. know? Like, and, and whether, and if it goes south, do you actually like manage it properly, right? Because sometimes you can start off with a good intent, but sometimes you create a death ray. And if you don't, <laughs> you know, recover, uh, sorry, that's a bit of a dramatization, but <laughs> you know, you have to manage it, right? If it starts to fire off randomly, right? Like, uh, if you don't, then you're just an evil person, like, right? <laughs> and they, they always talk about, like, evil gamification. Yeah, but there's yeah. also good gamification. Um, So, one, I mean, one company that does this pretty well is Living Theories. Uh, Living, Living Theories. Theories. Living Theories. So, they are a gamification company. And they're uh, managed by this uh, guy called Seaway. Very wonderful uh, 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 mentor of mine from time to time. And, like, he... He practices the usage of gamification beyond like simple points systems, right? He, so for example, one thing that he got me to test the other day was, um, you know, how during the times of pandemic, right? How do you, um, um, gamify you learning new skills while you're stuck at home? You know, Mm. and and so there's this thing where he came up with where it's kind of like a game where you have different levels of food starting from the very easy omelette all the way to, you know, chow fan or something, you know. And, and, And so he gamified the whole system, right? But is it, it's definitely not evil. It's just a way to motivate yourself just as you would in, in any other like, oh, I have to do 10 year series papers, <laughs> right? And then like, uh I got, oh, after 10 papers, I can go and play games, right? Like, yeah, that, yeah, that is yeah. also gamif- yep, gamification. Yep. And it's as simple as that. And I think when you do it from that intent, that's great. But when you do it in, say, a, if you're a huge ass company and you're using it to reward people to like overwork or snitch on each other, mm. then that's where the intent is wrong or mm. you might have good intent, but you didn't manage it, right? And then, then that becomes bad gamification. So again, it's a tool. It's effective. It's great. Uh, I, in, in theory, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's always the people that use it. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Or, yeah. The, or, or even the idea of covert manipulation with regards to how gamification can be implemented, I think. yeah,
1: yeah. The, But the covert manipulation, I think I also want to be careful and say that, you know, I don't think... It's always the case that people intended to mm, exactly. covertly yeah. manipulate. But it's accidental. <laughs> accidental. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like how how I talked about earlier, oh, we're gonna create a game to brainwash people. Like they don't think that it mm-hmm, were, mm-hmm. but you know, that's what they're doing.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. In closing, I just have a little bit a couple more questions. Yeah. Um What roles do you think games play today?
1: Hmm. I think games so there are a few. Um so first one is escape, right? Uh second one is engagement, uh third one is experimentation. Mm. Um and and I think there can be always a little bit of a overlap in these areas, you know. Um because a game can do multiple things as well. Yeah. These what, are the three areas.
0: What yeah. have you played recently that surprised you? Or what have you watched recently or consumed recently that surprised
1: you? I love that question. Um, You're going to have to cut this silence out. Uh, Oh, leave it in. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, I feel like this pressure to think quickly. Um... Okay, I, I I if I had more time to think, I'll come up with a different answer. But because off the top of my head, I think one thing that I experienced recently was um this uh exhibition uh not exhibition sorry this escape room experience called uh, Ota and Friends. Okay, yeah. So it's it's by this company called El Masno. It's mm-hmm. by a team of artists and one finance guy, um you know who left his industry to pursue this this route and um. It's an escape room um, that is uh, like you know most escape rooms tend to be a bit more darker in nature like some detective theme thing oh, or someone like, died you someone died us. Oh, yeah, yeah, or, okay, yeah, okay. yeah your trapment room but this one was a lot more cheerful because and they had a mascot that's basically a cute freaking ot- like otter. You want you to know, say Ota? <laughs> Ota. But his, his okay. name is Ota. His name is Ota. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the the story is you have fifteen minutes to explore the house mm. and and to find Ota because he's hidden somewhere. Mm. And but the, the whole set was like designed to be so cute. It's like pop up Instagram at the same time and there are many like different cubby holes where you open a drawer and then there's like something interesting that happening inside the drawer. You know, one of those like Disney Mickey Mouse like bounce house kind of okay. like you know, hidden gems kind of space. So they use the excuse or the medium of an escape room to get you to explore the space, right? And I love that so much because it subverted my expectation of what an escape room is. Uh, And the fact that uh, the reason why they did it was also interesting. So they initially wanted to do a very typical, like, dark as a theme escape room and they were it was going to be dystopian and they're like but 2020 is already so dystopian (laughs) so that's where they was like you know what why not let's make something happy right and it kind of ends off the whole thing ends off with like you having a mini picnic with a cup of lemonade and a cookie that they provide it's very sweet you know and 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 it's very suitable for kids right and even as an adult i really enjoy that so Mm -hmm. much so i think that you know, that was something that I talk about a lot just because of how, firstly, it subverts your expectation. Secondly, it, you know, it's innovative in the theme or the, the realm of escape rooms. Thirdly, it was done by a team of non-game designers, right? They're artists, mm. right? And and that that to me is a good example of like, hey, you don't have to be in the games industry to be a games designer. Yeah. You just got to have the guts to be creative. Yeah. That's it.
0: To, to bridge off from that, what, in your opinion, are the traits of a good game designer?
1: Um, I, I think someone who knows... some. I, I think, firstly, you need to have a vision. That's very, very important. You need to have a vision. And and you need to know who your audience is because mm. you're going to shape your vision to that audience. And, you're, and therefore, all the things that comes with it is going to be how you pull the strings to get their attention and engage them right and thirdly you need to understand how to um, what what is the how do you manage the experience curve you know over the whole thing right how do you start how do you end what's in the middle Uh, yeah I think if you have those three things you're generally uh, going to be a competent game designer
0: gotcha yeah in closing do you believe in aliens yes I do okay and what sort of games do you think they'll be playing
1: oh mm, I think we're in a simulation right now okay I think we are the play- we are the characters that they are playing okay yeah okay yeah
0: haunting thought <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so uh where can people find you where can people find uh auto Culture online please uh, tell us your socials
1: all right so you can find outer culture Studios uh if you google it it's I think it comes up pretty easily otherwise it's at www.autoculture autoculture studioscom mm-hmm. uh, and we have a Facebook page we have an Instagram page as well yeah uh, if you want to sign up for classes uh, we do have a Eventbrite page that you can navigate from the main website too
0: yeah alright this has been a fantastic conversation thank you thank you thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired if you enjoyed what you heard thus far do give us a follow on Instagram and don't forget to share and subscribe stay tuned for the next episode